Welcome back to the All Personal Podcast, where we turn the good old saying, nothing personal, just business, upside down, and prove how, in fact, it's all personal. Nothing is just business. Because it's all either intrapersonal, how we manage ourselves, or interpersonal, how we manage our relationships with others, both at home and at work. It's all about our personal skills muscles. And today, I have an extraordinary guest, Glyne Roberts McKay. She is the founder and president of The Roundtable, a company where leaders cultivate their leadership together. In 2014, The Roundtable was awarded a gold award by the Canadian Awards for Training Excellence in partnership with PepsiCo Foods Canada for the Roundtable for Leaders Peer Coaching and Mentoring Program. And in 2016, they were named Best External Consulting Advisory in Canada at the Canadian HR Awards. In 2018, Glein was named one of Canada's Women Entrepreneurs of the Year. And she says, all experiences were kind of like winning an Oscar but without having to wear sequins. Glein is also the author of the Amazon best-selling book, Did I Really Sign Up For This?, and believes that leadership is a privilege. She is on a personal mission to inspire ambitious leaders to connect to their bigger purpose and passion so that work can be more fun and life can be more fulfilling. I don't have to say just how excited I am to have Glein as a guest on the show, do I? Okay, because here we go. Glein, welcome to the All Personal Podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's it's so great to have you. And um, I wanted to ask you to shortly introduce yourself to our audience today um, and say a little bit about what your journey has been so far. So how did you get to do what you're doing now? Yeah, sure. So um, so it's Glyne Roberts McCabe and Glyne, people always ask, ask me the origin of my name, so maybe I'll start mm-hmm. there. Um, so Glyne is a Welsh name and um, it means precious jewel or a jewel of great price, <laughs> but, it's, but it's one that throws people for a curve. So I always say it looks like rain, but it sounds like shine. So think uh, Glyne like shine. And so that is written on business cards uh, <laughs> through various iterations yeah. of my jobs. I remember you mentioned that to me <laughs> before we first spoke as well. Yeah. That was by the way. <laughs> it, it helps people. And there's a lot of people who've just heard my name and they haven't seen it spelled. And then when they see it spelled, they get all discombobulated. So anyway, yes, Glyne, I'm, I'm waiting for it to crack the top 10 baby names. It hasn't yet, but who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll um, be a you know, resurgence of Welsh names. I'm not sure. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I, my dad was a very proud Welshman. So hence the Welsh name. I have three younger brothers that also have Welsh names. And we were born in England. And then my dad emigrated to Canada in um, 1977. He was the technical director for Rugby Canada. So he was a coach and coached rugby. 
And um, the background, and I share this because the background in my family, everybody was either teachers, preachers, or coaches in some form or another. And so I feel like my, what you, you asked, you know, what led me to where I am now? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't actually, I think when you're a teenager, you don't listen to what your parents tell you you should be doing or what you um, are you know, meant to be doing. So uh, when I was in grade 10, I had a teacher who um, told me that I should be in illustration, told me that I would be an amazing illustrator and I should go to Sheridan College for illustration. And so that's all I really needed to hear. So right. I ended up finding myself um in illustration school um, at Sheridan and by December thinking, oh my God, I've made a huge mistake. This is not Mm. for me. And I think that was sort of a great lesson in terms of don't always listen to your mentors. (laughs) You know, that sometimes, you know, people have very well-intentioned but misplaced ways of giving you advice in your life, you know. Um, And so that began a journey of me trying to figure out really what brought me back to what I do now. And um, so I um, switched out of illustration. I went into creative advertising. I thought I was going to be a creative director at an ad agency until I saw what they paid people. Um, (laughs) At the time I graduated, my parents, my entire family actually had moved back to the UK. So I was living by myself in Canada. And so it's interesting how Maslow's hierarchy of needs really kicks in and you Mm -hmm. start to go to, I need a roof over my head. I need to be able to pay my bills. So all of my choices from the age of 19, which was when my parents moved um, back um, back to the UK, were all based on, I need to be able to get a job. So I made all my decisions yeah. around what course to take, what first job to take, um, and my career path. So where that took me to was starting in advertising. So I worked um, for the Ottawa Citizen because they hired the most graduates from my um, program and they paid the best. <laughs> so those were my <laughs> two criteria. And so I went there and um, very quickly knew that that wasn't going to be where I wanted to be and then started to transition into not-for-profit. I became a fundraiser. From being a fundraiser, I became a membership director for a tourism marketing agency called Ottawa Tourism. And then from uh, Ottawa Tourism, I went to, uh, uh, it got into training. And that was sort of my transition where I really found what I would say I found my way back to where I was supposed to be. So I went into corporate training in the late 1990s, 97. And um began my career there, started to deep dive into the space of adult learning, Mm -hmm. learning about um, Mm -hmm. training and development in the classroom, and had a client one day say to me, because I was head of... um, head of training for this company. And she said to me, you're on the wrong side of the table, you should be in sales. And if you ever want to go into sales, my former consulting firm would be a great fit for you. And so one day, for a variety of reasons that we could (laughs) dive into around my inability to, uh, you know, report Mm -hmm. to other people, (laughs) um, (laughs) I decided to take her up on that offer and ended up in a consulting firm here in Toronto um, Mm -hmm. that was led by a really wonderful human being who um, really took a very strengths-based approach to his leadership. And so I had the great fortune of working for this company um, called MICA and eventually became their managing partner in Toronto 
And we did everything, I say it's from soup to nuts around leadership development. So Mm -hmm. we had classroom training programs, we had consulting services, we had assessment, we had an assessment practice, we had coaching. I did my coaching certificate while I was there. Um, I kind of deep dove into different assessment tools Mm -hmm. and um, became a coach for derailing high potentials. Um, there were some changes within the company. I decided to leave and uh, went to um, work for another entrepreneur that ran a national women's network. And um, again, a lot of those elements of um, uh, training and development and recognition for women, but also peer groups. So they had launched a peer program. And so I went in and started facilitating these peer groups for these very senior level um, executive Mm -hmm. women. And um, I'd been thinking for a long time about what was working in leadership development and what wasn't. And so I felt like, you know, it was really the marrying of those two experiences, working for um, this women's organization, working for MICA, Mm -hmm. and then seeing, okay, there's a better way to develop leaders. And I have an idea for this. And that's what ultimately led me to launch my own business. And Mm -hmm. um, which is where I am now. So it's the round table and uh, it's a, an organization that helps leaders navigate change, transition growth, all through the approach of group coaching and group mentoring and peer to peer learning experiences. So um, Mm -hmm. that's what we do. Um, It's such an interesting story to, to say, I don't know if you realize (laughs) (laughs) Sound <laughs> from my side of the table, but it's uh, it has so many elements into it. And as you were talking, and I was taking some notes, I already had a lot of of questions around um, everything that all of the steps that you, mm. you went through. Um, but now I changed my mind, and I will actually start with the question related to the round table. Mm. And why this name? Why the round table? Right. So um, the the original name for the company was actually the executive round table. And mm-hmm. what I, I think when I was thinking about the business, I was thinking a lot about how in, in leadership, we're always told it's really lonely, you know, it's lonely at the top. And mm-hmm. when I was in my career, I was a very young leader. When I was managing partner, I was in my early 30s. My peers were all in their early fifties, you know, I was, I was about 20 years younger than my other, the other managing partners that ran the other offices. And I can remember at that time feeling like I needed a tribe and there were lots of organizations at that time for CEOs. And I kept saying to my boss, cause he had been a very long time member of YPO, I said, where's, can I join YPO? Like, where's the group that I can join? But you had to be, they've changed a lot. But at that time, back in 99, 2000, um, you had to be the CEO, the owner of the company, the founder of the company, right? To be able to be a member of, of these organizations. And so that got me really thinking about where's the peer group for mid-career people? Like, where can you go with people that have your back, that have, you Mm -hmm. know, it's leadership doesn't need to be lonely. And so I always had, maybe it's my British roots, but, you know, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, I sort of had this view. (laughs) That's exactly what it was. It was this idea of, you know, you have this council, you have this round table of respected and trusted 
advisors and colleagues who are going to give you the real deal on leadership. And I think the reality, you know, and when you run a consulting firm, see, my background wasn't human resources. My background Mm -hmm. wasn't, um, you know, going through and doing an MBA or getting a PhD in IO psychology. I'd come into leadership consulting as a leader. I was a leader. And so when I was running the firm, I had a lot of very smart people reporting into me and um, they were, you know, great with our clients. The, the, The real interesting fact though was most of them had never actually led before. They didn't lead teams. Most consultants yeah. don't lead teams. They consult mm-hmm. on team, you know, they consult and they bring a lot of expertise and knowledge. And so the gap for me was, I want to be able to talk to people who've actually walked in these shoes. Like it's one thing to understand the theory or to know the yeah. concept, but I will tell you when you are sitting the night before you have to go in and fire somebody and you're thinking about how that conversation's going to go and you're you've never done it before and you're losing sleep over how you're going to show up in that meeting there is something really comforting about being able to share that with other people and other people who have done it and hearing from them you know what have they learned what what worked what didn't work what were the lessons around that yeah, and sort of and i think for me i'm an impatient learner i like to <laughs> Um, quick, I don't like reinventing the wheel. I'm a quick start by nature. So I love this idea of being able to sit with really smart people who are really great and just hear their experience and then not, not take it as advice, but just be able to integrate that into my own reality and then figure out what I wanted to do moving forward. Right. And so I think that's where the name the round table came from. I, I since shortened it to be just the round table. We removed executive from it because what was happening was a lot of people thought we were just for CEOs. And in fact, we're, mm-hmm. we're actually not for CEOs. We're for everybody who's underneath the CEO, but not for the actual C um, level leader. So mm-hmm. um, it was easier to kind of just call ourselves the round table. And it's also interesting to, to hear you say that it's um, related to to your roots as well as acting as a support group. And also it's related to how you want to, you know, pass your, your message on as a leader and how you want to have tough conversations and still you know, transform them into meaningful conversations or into less traumatic conversations, at least. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something, I think over the last two decades at work, one of the things Mm -hmm. that's been really happening is we've become more and more isolated in our work. And when you Mm -hmm. see the um, rise of mental health within the workplace, when you see the rise of loneliness within the workplace, I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that we've become extremely transactional. You know, workplaces have become more and more focused on profit, uh, more and more focused on business results. We're losing our soul. And I think as a result, people are feeling lonely and disconnected. You know, I have a, um, my, my husband works in an organization. It's a healthcare organization. He's a psychotherapist. And I got home last night listening to him talk about what's happening in his workplace. He counsels people who are depressed, sick, suicidal, anxious, and 
the changes that are being made in that system are all about moving to how many patients did you see a day? Why did you have such a high cancellation rate? We're not putting the focus on actually helping people. We're putting the focus on efficiencies, right? And so what that does to the people who do the work is it creates incredible amounts of pressure and stress, right? And I think that's one example, but that's across the board. And so I think the thing that I think about is how do we bring community back into organizations? How do we help our um, our leaders and, and below, like everybody within the organization, reconnect to that sense of community? And that's what really happens in the roundtable experience. You feel, you can start to feel like you're the only one who's feeling this way. You're the only one who's yeah. experiencing this, this pressure. And when you sit in a room with other people and you can share and you normalize it and you go, oh gosh, we're all kind of in this together. And then we can be proactive as leaders around how we want to show up. I focus on leaders because I feel like if you can strengthen a leader within an organization, they have such impact and influence over the people that work with them. And so you create these ripple effects within the organization. The leaders are stronger. If the leaders are um, more confident, if the leaders have the tools they need to be successful, that will cascade down into the organization. So I think, you know, there's so much going on in our workplaces today. And we, we really need to think about how are we reconnecting and how are we supporting each other and not continuing on this path of loneliness and isolation, which we seem to be on at breakneck speed, actually. Like it just, it doesn't seem to be getting better. It seems to be getting worse, right? That's so true. Um, and I, I like that you you made the connection to, to mental health because that's actually very much related to this. And it's at the core of that, how, how isolated you feel is gonna have such a strong impact on on your mental health long term mm-hmm. and that does not um stay just in the in the workplace you take it with you everywhere you go mm-hmm. so it has an impact in your personal life mm-hmm. definitely yeah for sure so doing the kind of work that that you do um is i i think it is crucial for everybody because of the the pressure that you that you mentioned um and that's increasing it's i don't see it decreasing um anytime soon uh-huh. Uh-huh. um but i i wanted to to dive a little bit into your own path and experience becoming a leader and because you said at, at one point that you were back where where you were supposed to be mm-hmm. so going from a career in in creative advertising and going back to your roots <laughs> of having coaches and teachers and preachers in your family and discovering this this path of training and coaching people and also from that leadership position that that you were in so how was that transformation for you what what skills did you discover there Mm -hmm. that you already had or that were easy for you to to use in this transition from that took you back where you belonged to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think 
I think for me, I'm the oldest of four children, right? And I'm the only girl. I have three younger brothers. And I think as a result, I was always, I was thrust into leadership from the time I was two, (laughs) you know, when my first brother (laughs) came on the scene. And I think that, you know, I'm, what I've learned about myself, what I didn't know, I think a lot of times when we're, when we're, you know, younger and we're, you know, going through our teenage years and even into our early twenties, um, you know, school teaches us a lot of knowledge-based learning, you know, like how to count to five and you know, or 10 and yeah. all the ABCs. And, you know, you spend a lot of time in science and, you know, th- those sorts of, you know, curriculum pieces. I was not a great student. I was great in my, in the languages side. I was terrible at math and science. I really struggled. And Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that I felt, and I see this same thing with my daughter, is that um, school is a very narrow, um, it doesn't really, it doesn't really equip you for life. And one of the things I think that um, I wish I'd known earlier about myself, but you know, it's when with the benefit of hindsight 2020 you can look back and see things right mm-hmm. is that you you're not really taught some of your intrinsic things like your intrinsic motivators the things that yeah. really are um you know your strengths the things that are unique to you because school isn't about that school is about conformity right you have to conform you have to fit in to get to this grade and it's all measured and you know and yeah. there's some people that would do that very well and there's if you're at all um if you all think differently in any way you're not gonna you're not going to um you know necessarily recognize where your strengths are so for yeah. me i felt like um you know, all the way through school, I was a leader. I was, I would say I was a reluctant leader. Like I, I never really, I wasn't that person who was gunning to be the class president or Mm -hmm. um, those kinds of things. But what I would find is when I was in groups, people would look to me for guidance. What I would find when I, um, I was never afraid to speak up. My father taught me from a very early age to question misplaced authority. So I didn't really have a fear of authority. I, felt that, you know, if you were in a senior position, um, part of my job was to make sure you knew what the pitfalls were. So I would be, and I, I think very early on, I remember actually my very first job when I was at the um, Ottawa Citizen, it was a pretty traditional workplace. Um, people, you know, there were certain paths that you took. And I can remember one day talking to a colleague of mine about an idea that I had, and it was an idea that would benefit me and it would benefit the company. Like it was a win-win for both. And I can remember saying to him that I was going to go in and talk to our supervisor about it. And, and I remember he said to me, he said, who do you think you are to go in and talk to Peter about what he should be doing differently in the department? And I can remember thinking, well, what do you mean? Like, I'm, <laughs> I've got a good idea here. Why wouldn't I share it? And the worst thing that can happen is that he can say no. So I, I think, you know, there was there was definitely a mindset that my father had instilled in me very early yeah. on that I didn't, rec- you know, I didn't recognize and appreciate until much later around that being willing to stand up and speak up and not being, you know, intimidated by authority figures. I think the other piece, too, was this, this ability to inspire people. My second job after the Ottawa Citizen was with the Big Sisters Association, where I was their fundraiser. And I ran a lot of volunteer committees. And the thing about Big Sisters is they're volunteer committees are white collar women. So I had a lot of lawyers and stockbrokers and you know people right. that worked for the federal government in my on my committees. 
very type A personality women. And Mm -hmm. one of my strengths was being able to bring them all together. I could read people. I could, I really learned how to influence because when you're not paying anybody anything and they have to do big projects for you, you really learn the art of managing through influence. And so I think that, and, and how did I learn that about myself? Well, because people told me that, like when I left Mm -hmm. and I got cards, people would say to me, oh, you're such a great motivator. You're a great influencer. You're, you know, so terrific at, um, you know, your, your creativity. I'm very quick at coming up with ideas and being creative um, in -hmm. terms of solving problems. So there were certain things that I started to recognize within myself. And I think through your twenties, when I think about when younger people ask me about career decisions, I think part of what you have the opportunity to do in your 20s is to explore those things. It's to try different things and to discover, is this truly, I can be good at something. Like I'm very good at seeing typos and things and I can look at, you know, I have a high aesthetic. So I can look at, um, you know, I've got a, a flyer on my desk right now that's in front of me and I can look at it and I can see how I would improve the, the look and the layout of that. I wouldn't have been able to come up with the original design, but I can look at something and say, oh, this could be better. Would I want to do that for a living? Not in a million years. I, I just wouldn't want to do that. So I think the thing that, um, you know, when, when we get into workplaces, what happens to us is that our bosses and the people around us tell us, oh, you're so good at this, you should do more of it. And so mm-hmm. often we, we follow that path and we go, okay, well, I'm good at this. I'm, you know, I should be doing it. And you get in there and you think, well, I'm good at it, but I don't love it. Like I'm, this is not giving me passion. And I think yeah. for me, I was that classic Gen Xer. I spent my 20s, mm-hmm. you know, I was two years here, three years there, two and a half years somewhere else. I had a lot of opportunity to try different things. And everything I did, some things I thought I was going to love, and then I would get in there and I'd realize, oh my gosh, I'm really bored right now. And so I kept chasing the next thing. And it it wasn't until I joined this consulting firm where we did all of this work in leadership development and we did all of these assessments that I finally could look at my own patterns and go, oh, this is why I didn't like this. This is where my, yes, I'm really great at coming up with ideas, but I'm terrible at sustaining them because I get bored. And then I want to change everything up again, right? Whereas I used to see that as, you know, thinking, well, maybe I'm not good at this, you know, maybe I'm not good at doing startup things because I can't, I get bored. Well, it's not that, Mm -hmm. it's that you need to then be able to hand it over, right? It's not that you're not good at it. It's that, your energy comes at the front end of the process and you need to be able to hand it over to somebody whose energy comes from stabilizing the process. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think for me, that's been, it's been an ongoing journey. So certain skills emerged as I went along and you get feedback, right? You see what works, but you also need to sit with what do I, okay, what am I liking about this? And, and what am I not? And I think we also um, have a very great ability to minimize our strengths. And so things that are very natural for us, we think everybody can do. And so we just minimize it and we don't own it. And I think I did that for a very long time. I just thought, you know, well, surely everybody can kind of connect the dots on things really quickly. Like, isn't that just a natural thing that everybody does? And then you, then you Mm -hmm. start realizing 
no, this is one of the things you do well. So own it, you know, yeah, and, and use that exactly. as a, as a strength. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's the, you know, not, not everybody does that with ease. Exactly. So that moment when you realize, Hey, maybe, maybe not everybody does. Yeah. This. Uh, maybe it's something that I do well and other people do other things well. Exactly. So, um, yeah, but you're right. I think we're not, we're not used to looking at our strengths uh, this way or even considering them, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's natural. I'm just good at this and it just comes naturally mm -hmm. to me. And it, it, that's it. I don't think about it too much because yeah, it should be there. It should be a skill that's there. And it's a muscle that I use constantly. So yeah, of course. And I think if, and I think if a lot of the strengths that you have are not ones that are rewarded through your early formative school experiences, you really um, don't pay attention to them. You know, you're not, you're not awarded um, in school for your ability to collaborate with others. You're not awarded mm -hmm. in school for your ability to, you know, um, be kind or have empathy, be able to read people really well, right? And so I think for many, many, many people, their only view of their capability and their worth and their options is based on what did I get an A in, what did I get a B in, or I got C's and everything. And that's so limiting. And it's, I, I find it very unfortunate. And I find you know, there's many people that I work with that you know, they followed that ABC path into jobs and roles that they could mm -hmm. do, but they have no passion for, and it's not what they want to do. And then, you know, by the time you get mid-career, you can feel pretty handcuffed by those things, right? Because That's you have a, a house yeah. and a mortgage yeah. and kids and, or whatever, or you've invested 20 years in this, this particular line of work, and you feel like it's too late to switch careers and gears. So, uh, this is why I'm always sort of encouraging younger people do it when the risks are lower, like try something completely different, take a risk, try it. Cause it, I do think it's not impossible to do as you get older. I mean, certainly I've done lots of career changes um, mm -hmm. throughout my career, but it's, it's, it becomes, it becomes, um, I don't know if the word is harder, but it becomes more complex because you have then more yeah, dynamics exactly. to have to think about, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's true, and it's and it's actually pretty pretty easy to just um, sit down and have a real talk with with yourself and say, hey, so what do I like doing? What do I? Where am I? What am I good at? Mm -hmm. um, and maybe take a look back because even hearing your story and uh starting with hey i was the 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 oldest i was the young the the girl and i have three brothers so i was always a leader and it's just maybe you know connecting the dots this way that mm -hmm. it's it's some some of the skills that we grow up with mm -hmm. are gonna follow us all throughout our our life basically oh i really and believe we're, that mm -hmm. we're gonna use them one way or another yeah yeah i mean i think i think underneath we do a lot of work with leaders on their behavior right and mm -hmm. um behavioral skills if you want to call them um that but 
Um, one of the things that I've been becoming increasingly fascinated about is that your behavior sits above the surface of your motivation, right? So yeah. when you are motivated by something, then that's going to drive your behavior. If something doesn't give you a lot of energy and motivation, then it's mm-hmm. going to drive a different behavior. And so when I, um, you know, when I've, when I've deep dove into my own motivators, I can see patterns that go all the way back to my childhood of the things that are very hardwired in me. You know, there's certain things that are extremely hardwired in me. One of one of my very hardwired things is independence. Of a very hard, high high need for time freedom, variety, um, the ability to kind of you know, do things the way I want to do things. And so when I look at that, I can go all the way back into childhood. I never had to share a room with anybody. I never had to share my toys with anybody. I never had to share my clothes with anybody. I was the oldest. I was the boss. And so I can see that high need for independence come through all through the beginning of that. And so when I was, when I was working for other people, even when I had really great bosses and I had some really great bosses, um, yeah. year two was always a struggle for me because I went from year one mm. being the, you know, learning and listening to my boss and observing it all. By year two, I kind of felt like I knew what I was doing and I had, you know, I, I kind of figured out my rhythm and then the boss started, it felt like interference, like you're trying to help me and you're interfering. And, and that mm. is very much around being, I was raised very independently. I'd left home when I was 17. So I, I think that there's a lot of those patterns that get really stuck in. And I think it's ultimately why entrepreneurship fits me so well, mm-hmm. because I have yeah. ultimate time freedom as an entrepreneur. I have mm-hmm. ultimate flexibility as an entrepreneur. I look mm-hmm. at my husband, interestingly, he did the same assessment. My husband works in a, he's always worked in a hospital in, in different, um, for different companies. Yeah. And he has the same very high need for independence. He right now has been thinking about whether he wants to continue doing the work he's doing. And what I keep mm-hmm. saying to him is your problem is not the work. Your problem is the environment you're working in because you're yeah. working in an environment that gives you no time freedom, no flexibility, mm-hmm. no choice over mm-hmm. who you get to see or who you get to work with. And I think for a lot of people, if you don't understand the underlying motivators, exactly. it's going to create a pattern right in, in your life in terms of um, things that if you, if you can, if you can, understand them, then you can see, ah, this is where the rub is for me. So how do I counter Mm -hmm. that rub? Or what do I need to do to um, adjust? Or or what's a conversation I could have internally? Like, I was very fortunate that, um, you know, I did this assessment originally when I was at the consulting firm. So I was able to sit down with my boss and say, you know what I've realized? I've realized that me being the head of sales and having to work between the head of marketing and the head of consulting is causing me a lot of stress because I don't have the ability to make the decisions I feel I need to make to really drive our sales. And, and, and that was when I got moved from being head of sales into becoming managing partner, overseeing the entire organization, because mm-hmm. that was less stressful for me right. than having to have that time freedom and and um, being and feeling constrained by mm-hmm. having to you know rely on two other people to drive the results that I needed to drive so um, you know when you can start to unpack some of that it's really useful for really understanding is it the job that I don't like is it the environment mm-hmm. that I'm in is it the work that I'm doing is it the people that I'm doing it with 
what is it that's really at the core of my career malaise? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what is it that that's more that's as you said less stressful to you just because you feel more comfortable doing that that kind of job in in that kind of environment. I mean, maybe for other people, be, becoming managing partner would have been more stressful yep. than being the head of sales. Yep. Simply because they had a different skill set or because they needed a different environment to, to operate in. Yeah, 100%. Right. So, yeah, it's so, so great to hear you say that because it brings, I think it sheds a lot of light on all of the elements that we can look at when we think, when we have that question, you know, you, you reach a level and you're there and then you wonder, what is it that I'm doing wrong? Mm -hmm. Or is this all there is to it? Mm -hmm. Where am I going next? Where, where can I go next? I'm not happy and I don't know why. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so much of that is, I think I see a lot of people um, not really know how to diagnose their career funk, you know, and we all go through it. I mean, you know, I, yeah. I can remember when I was about three or four years into running um, the round table and I came home one day and I was just, I said to my husband, I said, oh my gosh, I'm just so tired, exhausted. Why am I doing this? And he looked at me and he said, um, well, you're supposed to be in bliss. You've got your own business now. It's supposed to be every day supposed to be bliss. And I'm like, it's lucky I love you because I would strangle, strangle you otherwise. But I mean, that's the reality. I, mean, I, I have days here where I think, oh my gosh, what am I doing this for? But when I look at the pattern of what's happened in this week, so why am I feeling this way now? Why is my energy so low now? For me, because where my strengths lie and where I get energy from is around creation. It's around mm -hmm. having a lot of flexibility. It's around being able to be sort of improvisational and spontaneous yeah. and helping other people. And all of those things give me a lot of energy. What does not give me energy is anything that's highly structured. So if I'm, if I'm in year end and I'm having to work with my bookkeeper heavily, if we're going through a process um, review, if I'm having to review, you know, sometimes we have to sign big contracts with organizations and I'm having to read through lots of, you know, legalese documents and things like yeah. that. If I'm dealing mm -hmm. with a lot of process things within the team, process mm -hmm. is not where I love to spend my time. Um, I can see why my energy is down. And so that, that allows me to separate out, is it that I don't love what I'm doing or is it I'm exhausted because I've spent a whole week yeah. having to up my energy around things that really do not energize me. And so mm -hmm. I think part of what I try and do now is be extremely conscious about how I think about my week ahead. And, um, and I say this to all the people that we work with, it's like, when you're a leader, I mean, you do have control over certain things of your time. And so think about what are those energy big rocks that you can put in yeah. to make sure that you are re-energizing yourself. If you get a boost of energy from being with people or being, you know, um, being in front of a group of people or things like that, how can you inject some of those over the course of your week so that when you're having to do some of the other things that you have to do as part of your job, like we all have to, you know, put on our <laughs> big girl yeah, pants and big boy right. pants and get the job yeah. done, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you, you can at least cruise through those moments with greater ease. 
right? So um, I think that level of awareness is so important for people Mm -hmm. to tap into. Yeah. And I think uh, hearing hearing you talk about it, it's um, very similar to um, a parallel that I draw between our skills um, and our body muscles. Mm. And I call them the, the skills muscles. And I call them like the strong skill muscles that we have, which are basically the, the strengths. Mm-hmm. So that gives us energy and that they're so so easy to use simply because it's they come natural to us yeah and it's like it's the ones that give us more energy because we've used them over and over again until we 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 don't even know that we're using them we we just are Mm -hmm. and then you have those dormant skill muscles um that maybe we're we've been afraid of using because it hurts when we use them Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it's it's painful to use them because we don't like that but it's there comes a, a point where maybe you need these these muscles as well like in, in a leader's uh path you have your your skills that took you there mm-hmm. but then when you're there you need to work on other muscles as well to to be able to support your strong skills muscles even more yeah absolutely it's very it's it's exactly the work that we do with the leaders that we mm-hmm. work with and what mm-hmm. what i know to be true is that um your muscles that you use the most um create liabilities for yourself so you can overuse yeah. a strength right like if you overuse a muscle using that analogy you're yeah. going to strain that muscle it's going to yeah. um then cause you problems and pain right mm-hmm. it's the mm-hmm. same with the behavioral strength so yeah. you know when i talk about being really great at coming up with ideas and i can come up with ideas very quickly i can see connections between things and see immediately see a better way to do something that's a wonderful strength what happens, mm-hmm. the liability that is extremely closely tied to that strength is with my team, when I'm walking in the door every day or every time we get together and I go, oh, I've been thinking about this and there's a way we can improve this and there's a way we can do this better in the way, you know, because it tends to be that kind of iteration of ideas that yeah. I bring. Um, what happens to my team is they go, oh, okay, what's the focus? Where's the priority? Mm-hmm. I don't know what she wants us to be working on. And, and because I'm constantly iterating and I'm throwing out ideas left, right, and center, the first idea I said might not be the one that I'm ultimately going to land on. So for a team, like if you're a team member who's very process driven and you're taking that idea now and you're working it through into a project plan and how are we going to make this work? And then all of a sudden I come in the next day and go, oh, I was thinking about that, but that's actually not going to work. And so here's the next thing I'm going to do, right? Or here's the next thing. Mm -hmm. It can create frustration. It can create chaos. It can create a lack of focus within your team. Mm -hmm. So Every strength has a corresponding liability. And to your point, the the hard thing, and this is the very difficult thing for the leaders that we work with, is that but this is my strength. This is what's made me great. This is the thing that (laughs) has allowed me to be successful. And how do I stop the strength? And and that's exactly right. You you actually don't want to stop your strength. It's just you want to stop the overusing part of the strength. And the best way to do that is to look to see what's the muscle you're not using as much. So the mm-hmm. muscle that I don't use as much is the muscle that's around structure and process, right? Mm-hmm. And so 
what I have to force myself to do is to put in place um, things that will slow my thinking down. You know, there's a great book called Thinking Fast and Slow. I'm yeah. a fast thinker. I love it. Yeah, I'm a fast <laughs> yeah. thinker. And so one of the things I have to do is think slow. And so there's different ways to do that. One is thinking mm -hmm. tools and thinking processes, forcing myself into pushing my ideas through a structure where I can vet them and validate them before I talk to people about them. The second is that I hire people who are slower thinkers. And I don't mean that like a derogatory way, but they are just, they no, are just no, no. naturally good it's, at yeah. taking the idea and pushing mm -hmm. it through that, that piece. And I respect, and the, the key is you have to respect people who have that different strength to you and not be irritated by it. Right. And so that's the piece. So it's like less about, water down the strength it's more mm -hmm. about for me how do you bring a new approach or a new muscle to use your great analogy that i can i can work out but i don't need to yeah. use that muscle all the time i need to use that muscle when i need to use that muscle i'm not going to try and be great like it would be a waste of time for me to try and become the best uh structure detail-oriented mm -hmm. person in the world i'll never be good at it I don't have the motivation to be good at it. I don't have the yeah. inclination to be good at it. But you know what? I can focus on when do I need to use that and bring that in so that I get better results, right? I don't need to become suddenly somebody that I'm not. And I think that's what a lot of people often I find they get. They kind of feel like they suddenly have to change who they are or they have to change mm -hmm. their personality. And I say, no, it's not about this at all. It's about making a small tweak learning how exactly. to use this little muscle when you need it. Like if you never mm -hmm. use it, you're never going to know how to, you're not going to be able to bring it to the forefront when you do need it. So let's practice it in situations where you do need it. And we have a model yeah. at the round table that we call intentional leadership. And mm -hmm. it's really about becoming extremely intentional about how you want to show up as a leader. And so as a mm -hmm. result of that, what are the behaviors you need to use in this situation? What are the things that you need to be um, thinking about before you go into that meeting so that you can show in, show up with intention, right? And, and bring yeah. in, if you know you need to bring in that muscle that you don't use very often, you can think about it and be prepared with it if, mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to, you know, do it on the fly, <laughs> which doesn't work all that exactly. well. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I liked the, how, how you, how you said, okay, so, and, and then I have people who think differently mm -hmm. and who are maybe naturally good at that. And that's good. So it's all about coming back to your point of leadership doesn't have to be lonely. Mm -hmm. It's also about, okay, what are my, my strong muscles? What are the muscles that it, I need to develop further? But then up to a point, and then I need, I need people around me who actually can be the best at that. Yes. Which I can't be the best at. Yes. So and surrounding yourself that. with different, yeah, you exactly. Know? Cause I think, yeah. I think oftentimes I see people in conflict with other people and I'll often look and I'll say, the reason why you're in conflict is your styles are so opposite. You're mm -hmm. this way. And you know, and a lot of companies use pro, you know, uh, assessment tools like DISC or yeah. MBTI, or, MBTI and those yeah. are great starting points to be able to say 
okay, if I'm a J and you're a P, we're going to have some natural tension. But you know what? Yeah. There's something great about being a P when I'm a J. And so how do I leverage that capability and how do we leverage it from each other? I think often we talk about conflict in the workplace in this very negative way. And, you know, I have a friend, Leanne Davey, who wrote a great book called The Good Fight that talks about constructive conflict in the workplace. We need conflict. I mean, you need to have constructive um, conflict to to make things better. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of the things that we see as being personality conflicts between people are not that at all. It's a style difference. You have somebody who's working differently than you. You're not going to change their behavior in the same way they're not going to change your behavior. And I always say people who've been married know this for a fact, right? If you've tried to, if you've successfully changed your spouse, please call me. I need your number. Um, it doesn't happen. What you have to do is look at what's, how am I reacting to this behavior and where, and do I want to put a lens on it? Like if you want to put a lens and look at, how this behavior is driving you crazy and this person is driving you crazy. Well, that's what you're going to see. That's what your brain's going to pay attention Mm -hmm. to. And that's what you're going to follow through on. Whereas if you start to look at it to say, how is this person enhancing my ability to do the work? Gosh, what are they bringing to this conversation that I wouldn't have even thought of? What did they do that I really don't do very well? But it all comes back to what we started talking about at the beginning, but I don't think I labeled this way is it all starts with self-awareness. You know, the more self-aware you are, the more you understand yourself and Mm -hmm. your biases and your preferences and all of those great things, the better equipped you're going to be to be in relationships and productive relationships with other people. I truly believe that. Yeah, that's that's all true. And you know what, my... Um, I I always love to say that it's all personal, nothing is just business yes. because of that. Yes. Because it all starts with understanding how we function, how we operate, uh-huh. and then how we bring everything that we are into the workplace, into our home, in all of our interactions, we take everything. And understanding how that works for us is going to help us understand how other people work and how other people interact with each other. And it's not about how different we are from one another. It's about how we are different to one another and how that is helpful, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how does that contribute to our common goal? Mm -hmm. Because we're all there. So we have something in common already. Yep. And um, talk about um, conflict and having different opinions, which, by the way, I wanted to to ask you about that because um, I've met a lot of, especially teams, but also managers um, who are afraid of conflict Uh to say, you know, I, I want... I want just everybody to get along and I just them <laughs> to work on the project without having to argue yeah. um, all day or at times even, or not even knowing how to argue. I think that's an important bit that you touched on. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, so much of this is how we're socialized, right? Like I, I know for yeah. me, I grew up in a household, so I'm an avoider. Um, I grew up in a household where my dad was very dominant. Um, he, there was no arguing, you know, my father ruled the roost. And so it's very oppressive. Right. And I know um, for me, what that led to then is a whole lot of issues around control. So when people jokingly mm-hmm. say they're control freaks, I often think, well, probably in your early childhood, maybe you didn't have a lot of control. And so that's mm-hmm. one of your defense mechanisms now is that you're not going to allow anybody to ever control you again, right? Because you were so controlled as you were growing up that this is now your um, default position. It's certainly one of mine. And, um, you know, so then as a result, and you know, really, this has taken years and years of being introspective and paying attention to my patterns and frankly, being, it helps to be married to a psychotherapist in times like this, I think, and somebody who, you know, who doesn't avoid conflict. So I have, I'm yeah. very fortunate that I married somebody who is, um, like, it's almost role reversal. I know many marriages, it's the, the, uh, the wife or the female partner who will say, we need to talk about this. And, and the stereotype is the husband's like running away. I would say in our marriage, it's the reverse. My husband is the one who's mm-hmm. really great at, at surfacing and having the discussions. I would for sure, and my patterns have always been to avoid. And so, you know, I think you need to, first of all, understand what is your pattern when it comes to conflict. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say I avoid where, for me, it's interesting. What I, I recognize within myself is that I'm an avoider when it is um, personal relationships. Like I would rather, like if my friend had done something that would upset me, I probably wouldn't mention anything. But mm-hmm. maybe I'd start to see less of that person, right? That That's my, I will withdraw. Um, but at work, I had actually the opposite. So at work, when there was something that I didn't agree with, I had no problem calling it out, you know? And, and in, yeah. if anything, I became more of an aggressor. Like I would, I would be more because it's business. It's not personal, right? I was very, mm-hmm. very much, um, <laughs> I'm on the all personal podcast, but for me, I would very much <laughs> separate. I could have this tough conversation with you on a business issue and then walk out of the door and be your friend. And a lot of people, you know, my husband would say that's impossible, but for me, that part was easier because it's business. Mm-hmm. It's at an arm's length. It's something that isn't I didn't see you as being attached to it. I saw it as the issue that we needed to talk about. And so yeah. depending on where you are, like for some people, uh, and it's why, and I think for me too, a part of my wiring is I have a very competitive nature. And so mm-hmm. I will really um, force issues if I feel like it's going to help us win something and I won't back down on things. Now, if you're somebody, I have a team in here that are not, at all high winning. They're not competitive. They're very much about harmony. And so Mm. my interest in debating ideas and arguing about the direction that we should be going in and doing all those kind of things is not met receptively by other members of my team, right? They would, they, and so they will often just sort of say to me, okay, Klein, whatever you want to do, right? And so it's, I think, again, it goes back to with conflict, what is your pattern? Where did that pattern stem from? And how can you be more productive with it? So where I would get myself into trouble at work is I could have the business conversations, but if somebody was disappointing me on a personal level, you know, performance discussions, if if somebody's behavior Mm -hmm. wasn't right, I would avoid that. And then of course that never goes well. And so what I've really had to work on in the past um, probably, well, for sure in the past 12 years that I've had my own business Mm -hmm. is to, 
park that empathy piece that I have and really bring more of an, a results orientation to my conversations right. with employees. Yeah. And, and I've had to, you know, it all sort of fits together, right? It's never one thing. I mean, my pattern is I'm fairly loose. I like low structure. So some of it is employees didn't know what the expectations were. And so they would come in, I would have these expectations that were in my head. They weren't necessarily written mm -hmm. down on a piece of paper. They weren't meeting my expectations. I was getting frustrated. I was avoiding having a conversation with them. And then eventually they would feel the pressure though, because you can feel when somebody's not happy, right? Yeah. You can feel that energy. And then I would finally have the conversation, but it was almost too late. So some of my proudest moments in the last three years have been where I have, I know it's the muscle, going back to your muscle thing. Yeah. I have worked on my muscle of having harder conversations earlier. That has not been easy for me because I care about people and I don't like hurting people and I don't like feeling like I'm being the heavy. But the flip to that is, you know, um, I think a lot about there's a difference between being nice and being kind. And, you know, I was confusing the two. I thought I had to be nice to yeah. people all the time. And in fact, you know, sometimes the kindest thing to do is to say to somebody, this isn't working and mm -hmm. this isn't the place for you and I think you need to move on rather than trying to be nice and trying to help them succeed when you can see that they're not going to succeed right and so yeah. that's been a that for me has been a very big um, transition I think for, so again where does conflict sit for anybody who's listening right now and how do you approach it and what's been your pattern um, because you're right, in organizations, a lot of people don't want to have to deal with it, but you can only start dealing with it when you start recognizing within yourself what is your, mm -hmm. what is your pattern, right, for exactly. conflict. Yeah, and it, and it takes a lot of, of courage to, uh, to start that conversation, oh, right? So much. And, it takes, and it does take a lot of care as well. Because if you do care about what, what happens to the other person and to you and to the organization as a whole, you will initiate that conversation at one point or another because you can't be, you can't stay in a situation that hurts everybody mm -hmm. that you're trying to ignore because it might not seem nice. But I think it's maybe even, it's a little bit nicer to address it than to keep ignoring it while it's hurting everybody. Oh, yeah. I mean, whenever, anytime I've ever let somebody go or had to, you know, counsel somebody out of the organization, my team has never been shocked. They've always said to me, what took you so long? You know, <laughs> it's never a uh, thing that is, you know, when it's the right call to make, it's always the right call. Um, yeah. I think the thing too, just to pick up on what you were saying, which I think is is um, also so key to this, it goes back to what we were talking about at the upfront with um, you know why I created the roundtable. Mm -hmm. Often it's we don't have the language to have these conversations. We're not sure mm -hmm. how to initiate. It's it feels scary. So when you can talk to other leaders who've had the conversations, who use language, maybe they had a conversation that was horrible, and you can learn from what they did. You know, you can hear yeah. how they approached it. I know for me, that's where coaching and mentoring has been such a huge and important part of my career in life because exactly. you don't have to figure this stuff out on your own there's mm -hmm. yes you can take a course and yes you can do all those things and you should do all of those things but also don't underestimate the power of talking to your peers and getting their experience and 
you know, maybe the approach that they took isn't an approach that would work for you, but maybe hearing that approach gives you an idea of a way that you could approach it, right? Exactly. So it's yeah. Um, yeah. a really, I think it's so important that we tap into the wisdom of those around us um, for, especially around things like this, like what's mm-hmm. a good, for, I, I mean, I, I think too, if you're a very spontaneous person, it's great to have a sounding board, bounce off. What is it that you're thinking of saying? How does the other person receive that message? You know, yeah. it allows you to rehearse some of these things as you're going back to the muscle analogy as exactly. you're building that muscle, yeah. right? Like we've yeah. got to practice. You don't exactly. go from zero to lifting a hundred pounds, right? You work your way up to it. Yeah. And so all these yeah. little conversations are little ways of practicing and strengthening that muscle so that when you go into that tough conversation or that um, tough situation, you aren't going in cold. You've been warmed up. You're prepared. You've got mm-hmm. some phrases. You've thought through how will I handle it if I get triggered. All of those things, right? So yeah, yeah, that's that's so true. And I'm I'm happy we we talked about that. And I feel that we could we could continue our conversation for. <laughs> longer but I'm afraid we're reaching that point where we have to end it but I don't want to let you go before I ask you to to share an inspirational thought idea Um, I don't know it can be anything a movie a book whatever it is a quote whatever it is that you want to share with our audience today yeah I I um it's such a great question. I've been, I know you, you shared that question with me early <laughs> so that I could think about it. And I was thinking, what would I share? What would I share? There's so many things. Um, I think the one, though, that I, the quote that I always come back to in my life is a quote by Virgil. And it says, they are able because they think they are able. They are mm-hmm. able because they think they are able. And I love that quote so much because I think in our lives, we create so many boundaries and barriers for ourselves. We have an inner critic that will tell us what we can and can't do. And I have seen the power of this thinking over and over and over again. When you believe in your heart that you can do something, you will amaze yourself. And so I know for me, becoming an entrepreneur, I had many years, I, I, I spent seven years wanting to be an entrepreneur. And having a voice that told me that I would never be able to build something from scratch. I would never be able to build a business. I was a Mm -hmm. good number two, but I was never really that person who was going to have my own business. And so it's amazing when you lean past that inner critic and you take the leap into something, um, how you can look back and go, boy, that was crazy. Why was I listening to that? So that would be the quote for me that's given me a lot of guidance over the years. And I would just encourage people to you know your thoughts are not facts they're not facts Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. only you can determine what your future is going to hold for yourself yeah you're in the driver's seat Mm -hmm. so you can and it actually reminds me and thank you for sharing that because it it reminds it it reminds me of the other uh, another quote um about about that actually it's whether you think you can or can't you're right. Yes, I think that was Henry Ford that said that. <laughs> Henry Ford, yeah. yeah, yeah, which is so, yeah. Yeah, it's so true. Love. Yeah. Yeah, our, our brains are incredibly powerful. And so yeah. what we, you know, have become so fascinated with mindfulness, neuroscience, I would say the last mm-hmm. five years, I've really been 
you know, books by Joe Dispenza and people like that really reading and, and studying a lot of that work. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing what you can do to recondition your brain and then therefore create different pathways and ways of seeing yeah. the world. It's incredible. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts and ideas and experience and your story. Um, and thank you for being part of the All Personal Podcast line. It was wonderful to have you here today. Thank you, Roxanne. It was a pleasure being part of this. I know I've said this so many times and I'm so happy that Glein also liked the analogy. Our skills are just like muscles. So get to know them. Know what muscles you're counting on. Maybe a bit too much. And also what muscles are painful for you to use. And then train them all regularly just like at a skills gym and just notice how you start to think you are eight.